Fade In, Interior, Screenplay Podcast, Day. Hello, it's Dave here. We'll get into the show right away. No guests, just Kia and I talking about Donnie Darko. Just want to say that if you enjoy the show, a a review on Apple Podcasts always helps. Really uh, appreciate that. And you can get in touch with us anytime. First 10 pod on your socials. Okay, let's do it. Take it away, Gary Jules. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take. When people run in circles, it's a very, very bad world. Welcome to the first 10 pages. My name is David. I'm joined by screenwriter Kia Wilkins. Kia, no guest today. It's just you and I speaking about the first 10 pages of Donnie Darko. It is the film's 20th anniversary. Uh, well, that's 20 years since it premiered at Sundance and came out in America. It didn't actually come out in Australia until October of 2002. What's your relationship with this movie? Uh, it's a funny one. I definitely remember seeing it for the first time um, in the cinema, which I don't think uh, a, a lot of people did, particularly not on its initial release in the US. Uh, but You're one of the cool ones then who got onto it early enough to see it at the cinema. You and my brother did the same thing and... God, he used to wear it as a badge of honour. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember seeing it at Luna Leaderville in Perth. and uh, But I think maybe because it had had a year since its release in the US, it had had some time to generate some, some of its cult status already. So by the time it arrived in Australia, I think there was already murmurings. You know, if you read your Empire and your filming every, every month, there was some inklings that this was a yeah. film that you had to check out. You knew that it was a, a hot, independent release that you had to go yes. see. But you would have only been 14 uh, or so. Yeah, that sounds about oh, right. 14, 15? No, maybe even younger, 13, 14. But, I mean, 13, 14. to yeah. be honest, 13, 14-year-old boys is probably the exact target demographic. This is catnip for 13, 14-year-old boys. Because I was same. I, I saw it when it was uh, uh, out on video. New release, you know, I got onto it pretty quick, <laughs> but um, oh boy, was I obsessed with it straight away. And it was one of those movies that I sh- showed to as many of my friends as I could. What was your sort of re- reaction and relationship to yeah, it? Yeah, similar. I mean, it taps into a kind of teenage angst that is apparently universal because it just, it seems to have captured the imagination of every every teenage boy that saw it. The angry, no one understands me. Uh, thing which this movie just does beautifully, and it's a uh, it's one of it's a great example of uh, what my uh, my producing friend Aidan O'Brien would call smart for dumb people. Uh, yes, where it, it that's let, me. <laughs> oh, me too. And I am, uh, yeah, I'm the I'm the target for that for just kind of being like I get it, I get it, and I didn't get it, yeah. but it was just enough no. to be like, but I. Have, <laughs> I have some feelings about this. I'm thinking some thoughts. Yeah, I'm mean, even smart for that. Like, I feel comfortable saying that all 14-year-old boys are dumb. So even the fact that I was just so into it when I was 14, sort of how I now look back on, like, the movie Garden State, which hit me at a pretty tender Oof. age as well with its high emotion and complete earnestness. Um, now looking back on it, all these years later, there's so many other things that, that stand out and, and make me cringe a little bit. But having like watched and read it for the first time in so long, easily over a decade, I was sort of 
glad and relieved to find there were still things about this that I still liked, I still enjoyed. What about what about you? Yeah, look, there's plenty to love, but there is also plenty to hate, I think, yeah. is, is my overwhelming feeling. It's a film that gets shitter the older and more mature you get, I think. <laughs> It's uh, like, it it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I should say there's two very different experiences of watching this film. There's the theatrical cut and there's the director's cuts and they are very different experiences and they're both imperfect in different ways. How so? Well, the theatrical cut, I would argue, makes no sense because so much of what, uh, of the sort of logic of the, of the storyline and the sort of parallel universe element to it is just removed from the theatrical cut. So you were left at the end of that film with more questions than answers. And then I think because there was so much online debate and so much discussion about what does it all mean? And does, how do we read into all of these different little moments that Richard Kelly released a director's cut later where he had put in all these extra scenes from his original screenplay, which were very sort of dense science you know, science slash pseudoscience heavy about how wormholes work and stuff. So it makes a little more sense, but then it also becomes, you know, less enjoyable somehow for for making more sense. Interesting. Yeah, I have to admit that I didn't even... The concept of an alternate timeline didn't even come up for me until reading and, like, reading up on this film this time for this podcast. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, it's uh, you really need to like look look into it and make up your own mind because there's nothing about that in the. Actually, there probably is, but it's just I do find that there are parts of this screenplay and movie where it I I, it, I just let it wash over me and I just enjoy the soundtrack and the aesthetic. Yes, and I go ooh, the, and and I like the general sound of people sounding <laughs> smart. <laughs> I mean, we talked about the West Wing last week. It's Sort of like a step down from that, but you know, sciency, existential, um, philosophy stuff. Yeah, I think it must have been one of the earlier um, films to adopt a companion website, and so you could go to it and get all of this additional information and extra content that you know you could have a look through Lady Death's book of you know time travel and all of that sort of stuff. And so I guess there's just two different schools of thought on that. There's some people who go, I shouldn't need to be doing extra homework outside of the viewing experience to understand a film. And there's some people who get off on that, who just like eat that up and go, oh, there's so many interpretations. Like I want to be doing all of the diving down the rabbit hole on the internet to get all the different meanings. Yeah, I can get I I get that the type of thing where it rewards you the deeper you look and yeah, there's a sweet spot with this one somewhere in the middle though where I think if you look yeah. too deeply you go oh it's I don't I didn't want to see that much so there's somewhere between yeah. like getting a bit more than the film offers you like just in in its regular form uh, and maybe you gain a little bit more by diving deeper into the extra material. But if you go too deep into it, you start to question it too much and go, wait, that doesn't hang together. That doesn't make sense. Why would he be there? Yeah, that's when you end up and... on conspiracy theory message boards. Yes. Uh, how, of all the things that have aged, Pauline, you said <laughs> that this is a thing that gets shitter the older you get. One thing that hasn't aged poorly for me at all is the soundtrack. Still just unbelievable. Yeah. And was wondering if you feel the same way. It was the first, like, you know, it in- introduced me to In Excess and Tears for Fears. 
And the like the the soundtrack, the score is incredible as well. And it's part of what I think is like makes it a successful film experience because it's I don't know, it just elicits feelings from me. Yeah, the the soundtrack is amazing and I imagine a huge chunk of its pretty modest budget was getting those Duran Duran tracks, Tears for Fears tracks, and also the iconic Mad World cover that they recorded for the film. And it actually went, I think, number one uh, because of the film. You know, once the film sort of got this second life in in a cult classic sense, that film... uh, the sorry, the song went went up to number one in the UK, and I heard that the what, whatever his name is, Jules, the guy who recorded the cover, was contacted by the Tears for Fears frontman and was just like, "Yeah, I like your version better. It's actually just way more, way more interesting and much closer to what like the intention of the song is." That's something that's a bit of a time capsule about this that won't ever happen again. Is the cult classic DVD? life mm. where you know i read that it made 10 million dollars in the u.s alone just from dvd sales and something that was initially not a success can go on to become a success that's uh that's a thing of the past that's a bit sad yeah absolutely and i think there's no way this film gets made theatrically now it would be a netflix film it would be something like that so it would it the kind of cult status would come from word of mouth around, you know, people streaming it at home. But, yeah, not that sort of late-night, midnight movie kind of vibe that this film has. Important question. Do you understand this story, this movie? No, I can't claim to understand it. I <laughs> there Sometimes I think I do, but also when I think I start to understand it, I go, but if my understanding of it is correct, then it actually doesn't make sense. And I'm pretty prepared to say outright that the film has some huge logic holes and it doesn't actually make sense no matter which way you come at it from. Does it, it feels a little to me like Richard Kelly has all these big ideas and things that he ponders and he's just throwing them at us without any real understanding of them or how to resolve them. It's just, mm-hmm. what about time travel and fate? And God, what about God? And, you know, like there's a lot of things that just, even down to some more sort of character moments, like the, the exchange with Donnie and his friends about the Smurfs, which ends on this yeah. big point. What's the point in life if, if you don't have a dick? It's like, well, is that part of this? Is that like, what does that have to do with the rest of this, the, the thesis of this movie? Uh, yeah, what do you reckon? What, what's your kind of view on yeah. it? Yeah, well... I'd agree, absolutely. And I think that is probably why it found such an audience in teen boys because, you know, you're, you're doing all this questioning and, and, yeah. and you feel like you're thinking about these big things, but you also don't have the critical thinking skills developed enough to find an actual answer or develop a, an opinion of your own. So you just like go, yeah, but, you know, what about God? And, yeah. <laughs> and you feel like you're, you're engaged in an intellectual discussion, but really you're just feeling too much at once and trying to make sense of, of who the fuck you are and where, where your place is in the world. When you frame it that way, I kind of like it even a little more that it is mm-hmm. just... No, it's not that, 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 any, that I, the writer, or any of these characters have the answers. It's the fact that they're angsty teenagers, well, Donnie in particular, who, is, who they're just asking these questions and, and they're dumb, but that's, 
they think they're really big and important. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of endears it slightly more. Yeah, and we should say that Richard Kelly was only twenty four, I think, when he started writing this. So he wasn't very far out of that phase of his life anyway. And he, yeah, I think he was still at college when he started writing this. He was finishing his grad film. Uh, so, and, and being you know in my thirties now, I feel comfortable saying twenty two year olds don't know anything. <laughs> so, or twenty four year olds. So <laughs> well, the fact that he's know, a twenty four year old. Maybe the current generation do. I feel like Gen, most of Gen Z is smarter and more um, world-aware than I ever was or still am. Mm. But I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe they just ha- have the appearance of because they've memorised some uh, some TikToks <laughs> that they can quote. Uh, we should um, ignite a millennial versus uh, Gen Z war with this podcast. All I right. Think. Well, there you go. That's the first first punch thrown. Get Shots back at have me. been fired, Shots fired by Dave. So the screenplay that we read here is uh, Donnie Darko by Richard Kelly. We read the shooting script, which I believe came out when he released like the the book, the a companion book, because it's not like a you know other ones that we've read have notes and have uh, revision pages and different coloured pages. This is a pretty clean PDF shooting script. Uh, mm-hmm. He summarised the script to be an amusing and poignant recollection of suburban America in the Reagan era. Now, I don't know if Richard Kelly is talking about the same screenplay (laughs) that we read, because certainly it's set in the Reagan era in suburban uh, America, but uh, that's about as far away from how I would summarise Donnie Darko as you could possibly get. Yeah, yeah, there is, like, there's a vein of satire running through it and, uh, you know, poking fun a little bit of suburbia, but it's certainly not the the key takeaway from the film. No, it's sort of just a bit of dressing, a bit of, like, fun in the background, some business yeah, for his dad. Yeah, it's interesting really. that, totally, in 1988, it's a very specific choice of year, and given the film was, you know, being made in the year 2000, it's... It's quite recent history. You know, normally films, unless it's the film itself is about a specific historical event that, you know, means it has to be in that time. It's quite, it's an interesting choice. Uh, I love stuff that's nostalgic about very recent history, like Pen 13 and mid 90s. Particularly those ones because I grew up in the in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy them as well. I just, I think it's an interesting choice and it's, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he got a lot of pushback because it's, you know, it just adds a little bit of extra, um, you know, cost to production design and a little bit of consideration about like, we've just got to adjust everything in this to be period correct, uh, for really not other than a, a sort of loose aesthetic, there's no real reason that it has to be set in 1988. That's a really good point. And is that a consideration you have when you're writing that yeah, I'd love to just for fun because it connects with me to set it in a certain time or place, but then you think of the conversations you'll have with a line producer or producers in general and go, yeah, it would be way easier if I didn't have to put like a specific type of mobile phone in their hands or a specific... Mm-hmm. Um, make sure there's no certain cars or certain fashions have to be used or not used. Do you ever think about that? I try not to think about it when I'm writing, 
you know, you try not to think too much about the the production stuff at that point. But definitely when I was working in development, that was always very noted early on. When you read something, you always have to factor in, this is period, this is going to add cost to this, um, and how much value add is it bringing. Mm. Have you written anything, period? Uh, I... Not that's been produced. I wrote a feature film set in the 90s uh, in 1994, but um, nothing that's been produced. Wow. Okay. And maybe that's why. Maybe. <laughs> no, it wasn't why. It's because the screenplay wasn't very good. Is but it your AFL I would like thing? I think that they just went. Is it no, your AFL not footy? The AFL not, thing. Set in the ni- 1994, the year uh, West Coast. Is it a, was it about West Coast Eagles winning? The premiership. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a real riches to riches story. <laughs> uh, I think it's great when we can find the the uh, screenwriter talking about the initial germ of the idea, and you found it for us, Keir. So uh, uh, Richard Kelly had said that he heard a news report about a chunk of ice that fell off the wing of a plane and crashed into a boy's empty bedroom. That poor kid. What is he thinking about? Kelly asked himself. Did someone have my number? Were they trying to kill me? Was this kind of a sign from a higher power? So that's an interesting place to 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 get the germ of what became the sort of uh, um, the inciting incident and the oh, do you call it a MacGuffin? Is the is the is the plane engine the MacGuffin? I don't know. No, I, I mean I don't know that it's a MacGuffin as such, but yeah, I guess it serves some function of in that it's kind of irrelevant what that item is. It sets off a, a mission of some sort. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. So that's yeah. the, so I think that's really interesting to get that. It can start as something as simple as that. And that's something across these episodes that we're finding is that a lot of these award-winning screenplays start with a, just a very small observation, a very small like, oh, well, what if this? And, um, yeah. Germany. Yeah, I always think it's interesting where different writers start. Like some some writers, you know, it's an image. They'll just get one visual frame of their film in their head and they're like, that's a cool image. Where did that come from in my brain and my subconscious and how do I flesh that out? Some people, yeah, much more sort of um, outside input like articles or, um, you know, piece of music, things like that. It's always really interesting. And, yeah, I mean, it's a hell of an inciting incident. It's just like anyone's going to lean in when you pitch that to them. So one day, like a kid, um, you know, who's living in suburban America, a jet plane falls through the roof of his house and lands in his bedroom. Like you, you at the very least are going to go, and then what happens? Oh, uh, by the way, he's a paranoid schizophrenic and a six foot bunny rabbit is telling him the world's going to end in a month. Is he a paranoid schizophrenic though, Dave? Well, he's troubled, let's say. <laughs> it's, it's and he sleepwalks. Yeah. Sold? Question mark. Drew Barrymore. <laughs> Do we have a deal? Yeah. It's like n- no. It's not sold. And then you say, but what if Drew Barrymore, Patrick Swayze? Yeah. Jason Schwartzman originally is what actually got it some momentum. Jason Sh- Schwartzman had a meeting with them. The script was doing the rounds, and everyone was like, "This is really interesting. We love this." He got picked up by CAA. Um, but he was adamant that he wanted to direct it as well. And that's where everyone went, oh, no, like, we're not giving this 24-year-old 
a feature film of this sort of scale. So everyone kind of went cold on it. And then Jason Schwartzman said, no, I want to play. He was just off Rushmore. He said, I want to play Donnie. And then all of a sudden people started taking it seriously again. Um, and it ended up at, uh, I think he met with Francis Ford Coppola. He met with some huge people in the, in the financing of this film and eventually he ended up visiting Drew Barrymore on the set of Charlie's Angels uh, and had a meeting with her in her trailer. She like, when they rocked up, she was still flicking through the script and, um, she was like, I love this. He said, do you want to be the teacher? She said, yes, but only if you let my company, um, co-produce this film with you. And he was like, well, yes, obviously that, you know, we should be begging you to co-produce. And, uh, I think it went from there. So that's the star power at work. And that's another little sum- summarization of just how all the string of good luck that had to happen for this to get made, similar to what happened with Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, you, you've just got to make it easy for people to say yes. Yeah, absolutely. And fortunately for him, I- all these, all these, like the right people got involved at the right time and were very enthusiastic about it. Yeah, it's got a great kind of Hollywood tale of how it got to the screen. And then I think even after it premiered at Sundance, then it had a string of bad luck because uh, the trailer, you know, had a a jet engine falling from the sky. And then it was right after 9-11 and people were like, I don't know if I want to watch that movie right Mm. now. Um, And fair enough. And then so it kind of got a lukewarm reception at Sundance and it almost went straight to video it almost didn't get a theatrical release and it was actually christopher nolan who was premiering memento at the same of, sundance of course christopher nolan has something to do with this time travel oh, movie yeah. so so whoever was distributing his film i think this is the story whoever was distributing it he went to a screening of donnie darko and was like this movie's great and so told the distributors of his movie like you should also distribute this movie and that's how it finally got its theatrical release wow so, I wonder if Donnie Darko was changing lives. Donnie Darko was a, an influence for Tenant. I think it probably was. Yeah, interesting, <laughs> both playing with time, you know, twenty odd years in between. But yeah, it might be a spiritual sequel. Prove me wrong. Yeah, email me. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, what do we got next here in the? So yeah, you've mentioned that it, that it kind of bombed, but then went on, and we talked about how it went off on DVD. Uh, he also met up with Ben Stiller on the set of Mystery Men. So this really is... I want to... I would watch a, a film of the making of this film just to see him bouncing around all these early... this turn-of-the-century, two, year 2000 film sets of a young Richard yeah, Kelly yeah. meeting uh, all these people. Imagine that. He just, like, gets spat out of film school. He wrote a 145-page first draft... Um, you know, which is, is not advised. And then he wrote it in about 28 days, according to him, um, which incidentally is the amount of time until the world ends in the film. Uh, so he wrote it really fast. His producing partner that was producing his grad film knew someone who knew someone. And, you know, all of a sudden it was on the desk of a senior agent at CAA. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it's such a it's the story that so many young filmmakers would love to hear because it's yeah it's just you come out of uni you've made your, your short film and then you write your first feature script and then it's all happening the the part they probably don't want is 
the rest of Richard E. Kelly's career, where he never made another good movie again, and in fact has mainly derided for his work after Donnie Darko. I remember watching The Box, and I thought, wow, The Box is a really simple premise. Surely he can't make this overly convoluted, but he managed to. Um, and Southland Tales. I don't know wow. if you've seen that. But. I, I was reading about it today. Justin Timberlake described it as performance art. And I thought, yeah, that's that's a good way to categorize it in my mind, is don't try to understand <laughs> it or wrap it. generous way to categorize it. <laughs> it's so, wow, the tone of Southland Tales is so all over the place. Uh, its attempts at humor just land like a lead balloon. Hey, um... We should stop doing screenplays where people had these dream runs to getting them produced and all the all the right things happened at the right time. So let's do something like The King's Speech or The Favourite, where it was these very old men who <laughs> lived long other lives right. doing other things. Yeah. We need to set some realistic expectations yeah, exactly. for people. Yeah, someone who really battled for a really long, hard time before having any success. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking about this just yesterday, actually, and so often the narrative that sort of emerges and gets cemented as it's retold in press story after press story after something is successful erases so much of the hard work that went into it. Like, yes, every now and then there's an exception of someone who just just got lucky, but, like, I think the example we were talking about yesterday is how the public perception and the media narrative around Michaela Cole, who made, I made, I may destroy you. Um, how, you know, she's come out of nowhere and just made this groundbreaking television series, but she's been busting her ass for years, made another series before that, which, you know, most people haven't seen. Um, and they kind of erase all that and it does. Yeah. I don't know that that's quite right. All right. Let's move on to the first 10 pages. So the first 10 pages, what did you think? I thought pretty tight, pretty good. Yeah, tight. And as I say, it's a, it's just a great inciting incident and it happens in the first 10 pages. Um, it's incredibly intriguing. It opens with a dramatic question, you know, a kid waking up in the middle of the road in, in the hills. Uh, it's a great... That's a great opening dramatic question. Like, who the hell is this kid? What's he doing there? Then he cycles back into town. You're establishing your suburban 80s world. Um, You get your first taste of this killer soundtrack. Uh, And then, yeah, and you get all of Richard E. Kelly's, you know, potential overuse of slow motion, but he starts to build Hmm. that style that we're going to see throughout the whole film. Um, So, yeah, it's an enjoyable first ten. So it goes from Donnie waking up to the plane engine crashing onto the house and Donnie meets Frank, all within basically 10, 10 pages. And because it's uh, all big print, and the I, I, I'll read just the first bit and I'll put the, um, the, the, the music and, and what you see on screen underneath this, just so you get an idea of what it's like on the page. Great. Fade in. We descend upon... Carpathian Ridge, a crescent-shaped cliff that extrudes from the dense Virginia evergreens above a deep rock canyon. The cliff marks the end of a dirt road that winds down from above. Donnie Darko, 16, is asleep at the edge of the cliff with his bike collapsed next to him. He is shivering, curled up in the fetal position. He slowly opens his eyes and looks around, disoriented by the morning light. He then stands up, looks down into the expansive rock canyon. 
After a moment of hesitation, he takes his bike back up the hill. So this continues on like this, and um, it's pretty true of the full 10 pages. The full 10 pages are pretty well unchanged for, the, for what made the final pro- uh, product. But the rest of the screenplay has significant like differences, and it's mostly that a lot was cut out from the screenplay to the, to the theatrical cut. But the first yeah. 10 pages, yeah, more or less beat for beat, hits the right moments. Yeah, definitely in terms of story beats. The, the big cuts that I think are significant is that Frank the bunny has far more dialogue in this version of the screenplay, and I think yeah. it's better for not having it because it, it almost tells you a, a little too much or at least it opens up a can of worms on several other different things you know he talks about god to donny and he's a bit more explicit in who he is and what he's doing there and what he's like it's kind of nice in these very early stages of the screenplay just to be still full of questions and and not getting any answers yet yeah it almost gives him too much character and part of what is so intriguing is the mystery of Frank is that he doesn't say much. But yeah. you're right. I'll just give some examples. So page six, seven is when we meet Frank, which is, would you call it like half of the inciting incident? Or would you just say the uh, plane engine is the inciting incident? Or would you just say that Frank is the inciting incident? Or is Frank the... Um, the meeting with the goddess or whatever the, it's called in the, in the Hero of a Thousand... Yeah, in the, the story circle thing. Yes. Uh, it, it's interesting. I would probably say the the jet engine is the inciting incident because it's what changes the course of action for Donnie. We don't... At this point in the story, we don't have any clear sense that this is the first time Donnie's been visited by these voices. Um, and so he could in theory, cycle home and continue his life as normal, having had this weird thing happen. It doesn't actually change the course of his life, having Frank tell him this stuff, but it's the jet engine that puts him on a new path because they have to get out of the house. I mean, having but said that... But it serves that, the plot, yeah, but by getting him out of the way so he doesn't isn't crushed... That's true. That's true. And and having said that, there is a like it it sets up the mission of the film of you know you've got twenty eight days, six hours, forty two minutes, twelve seconds until the end of the world, Donnie. You know it's up to you. So yeah, good. Is there a moment point. you think? Um, is there a moment Donnie accepts the call? When does mm. it go from Act One to Act Two? Does it does it fit does it fit in neatly into that uh, three act structure? No, I would I would, I don't feel that this film conforms to any sort of of the structural yeah. points that you There's would no... find in any of the sort of the big screenwriting manuals. It subverts a lot of them or ignores a lot of them. Maybe not even subverts, just does its own thing. Um, yeah, there's no point where he denies the call to action. He no. just goes, and it's a, he's even unclear that it is a call to action. He just goes, oh. Yeah, I guess bunny. slowly he just starts to follow the instructions delivered to him by Frank. It's mm. not sort of a defining moment where he's like, okay, I'm taking it upon myself to save the world, mm. which, you know, you might expect from a different version of this kind of film where someone is delivered the- a prophecy. 
does Donnie ever, at any point in the story, realize that's the goal? It kind of feels like he's just reacting the whole time. Yeah, there and are it- small, small little missions like I've got to reveal the truth about this guy, or I've got to yeah. chop the head off the school statue, or yeah. And then the moments of agency for Donnie is when he's like a when he's a dick and to you know and does the big owns Jim Cunningham uh, in front of everyone, but otherwise, and I'm sort of just thinking out loud here. Is he, like, active? Yeah, he sort of increasingly gets active, and then it's towards the third, like, what, what I guess you would call the third act, when he's sort of realising that things are coming to a head and he's going down to the... He's going down to the cellar door and he's starting to understand that Frank has a role in, you know, and something bad is going to happen and he needs to get to the bottom of it. It's sort of, I guess, when he starts asking the... Noah Wiley character about like science, yeah, yeah, about time about th- travel. That's him sort of taking some agency over his story. Yeah, I was just thinking that it is. It is sort of he is trying to work out the mystery and trying to understand. So that is a protagonist doing something. Um, yeah, but it's mm. it's certainly not kind of structured like a standard hero's journey where he reluctantly accepts his call to adventure and yeah. And goes mm. through the usual sort of phases of that journey. Well, let's. Uh, I'll just go back to the page where we first meet Frank and just read a bit of the dialogue, which is not in the theatrical cut. Was not in the. Not sure if it was shot, but uh, this is what it's like in the screenplay. It just says, "Voice, hell of a night for a walk, huh, Donny?" That alone is not the Frank I know. The Frank I know would not say, "Hell of a night for a walk, hey, eh, Donny." Yeah. So, right there, smart cut. Uh, Donnie stares off into the distance. Tonight is very special, Donnie. What? I've been watching you. Do you believe in God, Donnie? God loves his children, Donnie. God loves you. Which, as you mentioned, brings in a whole other... Yeah, it gives it such a different flavour, doesn't it? A very, yeah, much different flavour. It's, it's like, there was a little bit I was wondering about this. Is Is part of this meant to be sort of a... Religious is how like does religion have a part to play in this, in the ideas that Richard Kelly is trying to explore with this? But uh, with something like that, it sort of makes it a bit more obvious, or it leads you down that path to think that it probably does or is. Mm. It, it, like it touches on religion a few other times in small ways throughout the film, and you know Donny calls um, Jim Cunningham the Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's never really sort of delved into in any sort of meaningful way. I don't think the role of religion in this story. Yeah. Uh, another thing that was cut from the final film is that the Frank actually introduces himself and calls him Frank, which in the movie, it stands out a little bit to me is that the first time the name Frank is brought up is in therapy. And he says, I made a new friend. What's his name? Frank. And you just think, oh, well, Donnie just, Donnie called him Frank. He called this big bunny Frank for no reason. Yeah. And yeah. I, does he even say in the film, I'm here to save you? I feel like maybe that's not in there. No. It's the comp- no, all, all he says is the, t- is the 28 days thing. Which is great because it's days. so spooky and haunting to just it's, have someone go 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. That is when the world that will end. That is when the world will and end. And that's all you need that's out it, of that you know, scene. You can, 
And you can just put Donnie Darko with a with Jake Gyllenhaal's face and put that on the poster. Yeah, great. And then you're like, yeah, there you go. I'm I'm intrigued. I'm hooked. So I would say that's the moment. It's at the bottom of page seven where Frank says that. That's the moment. Mm-hmm. It is like, ooh, where's this going? Because suddenly it's got a you got the ticking clock, which is a a, a screenwriting classic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Look, you've um. You've turned me around. You've won me over. The, I, th- <laughs> I think I agree that that is the inciting incident. And I would also be very interested if anyone's listening and disputes the, you know, that there isn't a three-act structure somewhere to be found in this film or a classic hero's journey. I would love to sort of hear a different take on that as well because it's certainly not necessarily my strong suit to go and lay these, you know, I don't know them inside out. So I'd love to hear if there is a... Um, yeah, I feel like there, there are to... people out there who have spent way more time dissecting this screenplay oh, and yeah. film than than we have. The the couple of hours we spend just reacquainting ourselves with something like this before we start recording. So, absolutely, first ten pod, get in touch. Uh, let us know where we went wrong or, or or something we've left out. Well, it feels like the first ten pages of this are pretty easy to to wrap up. It's just. It's a tight first 10 pages. Do you have anything, any other comments? The only other scene that I think is worth, you know, mentioning and praising is uh, the the first family dinner table scene, I think is a great, um, a great introduction to the world. Does that fall in the first 10? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, pages three, two, three, four. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as soon as he rides home, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's got some very memorable uh, insults. Oh yeah, totally. That have it was stuck so, with me. So quotable. You can so suck like, a fuck. Yeah. What? What's a fuck, ass? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and just a great sort of sense of family. And I think that's probably having that scene so early in the film uh, is something that would have spoken to that audience of just yeah, boys being like, not not just boys, but just te- young young teenagers being like, yeah, it just sucks being sat around the dinner table and my mum and dad just don't get it and my sister's a jerk and... uh." (laughs) Yeah, totally. Just the... Oh, that complete dreariness of a suburban existence. Of a safe... A safe suburban existence when you are a tortured, angsty teenager Mm -hmm. that people truly don't... Oh, I really wish I still had my sort of journals from around that time. Because it was all people don't understand, and one day they'll they'll see and yeah, <laughs> whatever. When I was back in Perth, so I, um, I went through a box of old tapes that my parents wanted me to clear out, and was watching all of these. You know, my first attempts at filmmaking, and I could almost track exactly uh, which film I had just seen and been heavily influenced by <laughs> to the film that I then made, um, and there was some. There was some, it was all so angsty, like the amount of just, you know, self-harming and, oh God, all yeah. of those things that just feel so deep and real. So where, where were you at this time? Were you in high school or was this like yeah, university? Was, sort of like, was this just yeah, on eight, your own? Nine, ten of high school and... You and know, you the, were making films? Yeah, oh yeah, making, like, you know, I'm not going to pretend they were any good, but I was, I was making short films from around that age and... 
There was one in particular where I was like, this is just sex lies and videotape. Like, I have clearly just watched this movie and been like, that's a great movie. I'm just going to make it again, but, like, put my friends in it. I think... So So was this for school or was this just off your own back for fun? I would spend just every, on weekends. every weekend, every after school, roping my friends in, um, being way too intense and serious about it. And they're like, well, like, sure, I'll be in your film, but, like, I'll rock up when I feel like rocking up. And I was like, no, this is, like, no, legit. This you is have a, a real call thing. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Kyle, you have to be here for your three o'clock call time. Exactly. Uh, we got to get you uh, into makeup. Yeah, I wish we were mates. I would have frothed on that. I would have been. I would have matched your intensity and in how seriously I took it. Oh, would have been great. It wasn't until you get to uni. I think this is so many people's experience that you're quite often one of very few in your small pond that want to do a certain thing, and then you get to uni and you're like, oh, all of the lone fish in their own small ponds have now come together around a common interest. Yeah. Like everyone yeah. wanna, wants to make plays and everyone wants to make short films. And that's beautiful. But you're saying you were making these angsty sex lies and videotape type films when you were 13, 14? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Entering okay. them into the WA Screen Awards. You know, I was really <laughs> trying to get the, the ball rolling. I had my eye on the prize from, from a very young age. How, how did you go with it? Did any of them get any sort of feedback or? Oh, yeah, like in, in that very small pond Perth way of, yeah, like WA Screen Awards and things like that. But, um, you know, it didn't capture the attention of Hollywood in the way that I, I maybe thought and dreamt they would, sadly. Well, hasn't, hasn't yet. Hasn't yet. You could still send it out. I, well, that's, uh, then maybe you would have been too sophisticated for me because when I was 13, 14, there was uh, a channel on Foxdale called Fox Kids, which played all kids' shows, and they had a film competition called Lights, Camera, Fox Kids, and one weekend, a couple of friends and I, and my friend's older brother, who was quite tech-savvy, we made a film, we called it Backyard Survivor, it was a parody of... Well, it's pretty easy to work out. It was a it was a parody of Survivor that took place in a backyard, and we just sort of worked it out and filmed it in an afternoon. It was completely exactly what you'd expect three sort of fourteen year old boys to make. It was fight <laughs> scenes and fake blood and all that sort of thing. And we entered it into this competition, and it was became a finalist. And I don't know how they paid for this or why they thought it was a good idea. They Fox Kids put a full televised award ceremony together in Sydney and flew out Martin, my friend whose name was on the application, flew him out for the award ceremony, which was like the Logies. It had performances Ooh. and Sarah Marie from Big Brother oh. and the guy who won the first series of Big Brother presented the award for the category we were nominated in, which was Best Reality uh, best reality Film. <laughs> and we won. So there is footage. I don't know if, uh, if anyone has a copy of it anywhere, if it exists, of my 14-year-old friend Martin getting up and ex- accepting award from Sarah Marie and the guy who won Big Brother. And she's going, yeah, um, just thanks to Davo and uh, Robert and my brother and um, thank you and <laughs> walking off stage. Uh, but then we didn't win the grand prize, which is what we really wanted. Oh, but it was this whole experience. I still tell people I'm an award-winning filmmaker, 
um, because technically it's yeah, true and you can't take that away from me. That is not a lie. Uh, but uh, when I got back, when we, you know, after that all happened, we didn't realize that in the following months they were going to show all of the winning films every morning on Fox Kids for like a few months. So I started getting recognized at school <laughs> from this thing that I made with my friends who none of us thought anyone would see. And I'm shirtless in it for some reason. I really, you know, it was... <laughs> uh, and I just... Yeah, well, I, yeah, exactly. It made It was an artistic choice at the time. But I was so, so embarrassed and so wanted no one to know that it existed that I remember one morning, like, in the bike racks, I was locking my bike up, and this kid who was younger than me, but he was one of the, like, mean, cool BMX kids who I was scared of, (laughs) and he just said, Oi, you're on Fox Kids! And I said, No, I wasn't. And he said, Yeah, no, I saw it this morning. I went... I have a brother, you know, and he sniffed weakness, so he used it against me. And every time I saw this kid around school, for the rest of high school, he would call me Fox Kids guy and, like, bring it up to everyone because clearly, like, it made me embarrassed. So it was a good lesson to like own own things. Yeah, to get that taste of fame and be like, it's not all, it's not all it's cracked oh, up to be. That, well, that, <laughs> that too. Yeah, I thought, God, these dizzying heights. I uh, I feel my life spiraling out of control. And these um, are the exact kids that Donnie Darko was appealing to. These fourteen-year-olds yes, who uh, were like aspiring yeah. filmmakers who had a lot of feelings that they wanted to express in artistic ways that they didn't quite have the means to. And felt like no one understood them and that they could see things that other people couldn't see and that they um, were <laughs> special. <in laughs> yeah. Don't you see my my parody of Survivor is actually a metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's what, that's what like, I'm impressed that you were doing that sort of stuff, the earnest, angsty stuff at such a young age, because that for me didn't start until... Uh, university when I was doing like film as one of my units mm. because that's when like I was really into the film Closer at the time you know the one with uh, Jude Law and um, who else is in it Natalie Portman and Clive Owen do you know the one I sure do so I was really into that when I was in uni doing this film course at Curtin University which we both went to so I wrote this breakdown of a relationship short film which was told out of order it was like not linear storytelling i thought i was so clever and we made it and i cringe when i think about it just because i had to ask the actors to like fully make out and roll around on a bed and these were people who were just doing it you know for they were volunteering their time and it's just so bad. And that's I give you credit as well for like what going when you said you were back in Perth, you actually watched them. I destroyed every copy <laughs> to make sure it would never see the light of day ever again. Oh no, I love I love cringing at my <laughs> at what I thought was good at the time and, and it's also a great um history of misguided hairstyles. Oh and yeah. Different ha- hair colours and Different piercings and all that sort of thing. Here's what I found. Oh, Thanks, oh, what did you find? Some old cringy uh, home <laughs> yeah. movies, uh, short I films. Found your discarded dignity. 
Yeah, the... anyway, so that's all fun. Yes, in, thank in, you, dear the... listener, for indulging that trip down memory lane. Well, hopefully you can relate, because um, uh, teenage, the time of being an adolescent is when so much cringe happens. Although, you know, I'm well into adulthood, and cringy moments still happen from time to time, so yeah. it doesn't get better. That's the message. <coughs> and reading uh, some interviews with Richard Kelly... Uh, in preparation for this podcast, I like that, you know, I said at the beginning that this film gets shitter the older and more mature you get, but he, you know, he stands by it. He still, he doesn't cringe. He still loves it. He still thinks it's his magnum opus. Um, mm. And I respect that. That's fair enough. There are things that are um, on the nose to me because Richard Kelly said there's a lot of him in Donnie Darko, which is fair enough. But then, like, having that in the back of your mind when scenes like, oh, Donnie, you know, your test scores are intimidating. And he's making this, <laughs> this guy really cool he's and a smart. troubled genius. Yeah, this troubled genius that no one understands. Uh, you're weird. I'm sorry. That's a compliment. It's, uh, it's a little bit cringy. Yeah, absolutely. And he's smarter than his own therapist. Like, he's... Yeah, fucking, fucking with her all the time, and yeah, yeah, and there's a bit of like Monopoly Man with the Jim Cunningham stuff, mm-hmm. you know, setting up this like, oh yeah, Donnie owned him, but it's like, well yeah, he was written to be this ridiculous, um, this ridiculous motivational speaker, so yeah. it's I don't know, it sort of takes the sting out of it, and Donnie kind of goes a bit full like a bit alt-right in that moment. They're like, take personal responsibility. Are you sick of being fat? Get off the couch. Like, you know, he gives this, like, Trumpian almost speech. (laughs) Proud proud boys. Yeah, it's a bit proud boy. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, that's um, a lot of the first 10 pages. Uh, I've got some must-mentionables that I'll just throw at you. Uh, Unless there's anything you want to add before we Uh, move on? No, let's move on. So, oh, we've already talked about the effect of 9-11, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. Um, Maggie Gyllenhaal cast to play his sister, Elizabeth. Yeah, That's so one her, of the I things. think maybe her first film role. Yeah. Well, by the way, must mentionables is you can't talk about Donnie Darko without mentioning uh, the fact that his sister plays his sister in the film. Just another example of nepotism. Uh, <laughs> how? Oh... <laughs> Watching and reading the the scene with his therapist about his dog when his dog died uh, and the I don't want to be alone, mm-hmm. I just thought about how many young actors would have used that scene. As like an audition piece or show reels. or show reels yep. just because it makes you look cool and interesting and sophisticated and like um, um, cool and interesting and I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, Seth Rogen. It's weird seeing him. That's yeah, first film role. Like I think he'd been in Freaks and Geeks and and a f- few television appearances, but first film role from Seth Rogen playing a bully, which is pretty funny considering like what he then became known for as the sort of the schlubby guy that Lo- would have been bullied with a heart of gold. Yeah, seeing him as um, as the tough guy that you know gives all the dweebs shit, and I was like, oh, he's a dweeb. Uh, They're really specific about ages in this script. Everyone, the age is very, like, it's not, there's no descriptions of the character, it's just their age. And it troubled me a little bit 
that the principal is 38. Yeah, interesting. Just for the fact that, like, I'm not, you know, a million years off being 38. And (laughs) I look at him and I go, no, that's an old man. That's an adult. You could, fe- if you had made different choices with your life, Dave, you could be on the cusp of getting that principal if I, role. If I had male pattern baldness in four, four or five years' time, I could be in a Richard Kelly film. <laughs> uh, and the and that this year, Richard Kelly, like just this year, he announced he's working on a follow-up. Mm, waited for the twentieth anniversary of the film to make the big announcement. I think a lot of people, he's hinted at it a lot over the years and a lot of people have begged him to, I don't, I can't say I have high hopes for that, but, uh, you know, I I will definitely watch it. He's also talked about making Southland Tales a franchise, so I don't know how much we can (laughs) say. no one in the world asks for. No one is asking for that. Well, yeah. that's, a, that's, that's all I have for notes. Didn't you say something that he made that announcement on TikTok or something like that, which is just a very 2021 oh, way to, to make an announcement? Did you? I, I thought you put that um, note in. No? Okay. No, not, not me. Wait, you've written TikTok series. Oh, yeah. No, that was about something else that when we were going to discuss. Uh, oh, okay, stuff, okay. Other stuff, yeah. Edit point. Edit point. Uh no, the only must mentionables from me, uh, I think. Oh, let me let me start again. Uh, so that's it for my notes. But um, do you have any last must mentionables, Kia? Must mentionables for me. Uh, I just want to shout out Beth Grant in this film. Yeah, um, she just so does good. such an amazing job, and I think my, the favorite, my favorite line in the movie, which she just delivers perfectly, is. Uh, I'm really beginning to doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. I just I, I still say that line perfectly. all the time in in completely irrelevant situations because it's just a perfect line. Uh, it is, a, and um, and also just got to shout out again that Mad World montage, the the perfect use of that song, and you see all of the characters at the end in their montage in their sort of alternate timelines. Um, it's just it's. It's almost like a music video, and it's one of the most iconic sequences in the film as well. Question without notice, so it's okay if you don't know the answer to this. Was that cover recorded specifically for Donnie Darko? I believe so. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the the people that covered it have some connection to the producers of the film, and like they knew their band and their work and were like, hey... And maybe beca- maybe it was a, like a, a needle drop price point thing that they could, it was a cheaper version of it to buy, like to get a cover of it than to get the Tears for Fears version or something like that. Because I know there yeah, was- I've heard of that happening on a couple of other things. I just randomly know that for the intro to the Office, the UK one, it was cheaper for them to re-record the song right. than use the actual song. So yeah, that that sounds about right. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's well, it for if me. nothing else. If nothing else, we'll always have that cover of Mad World. Yes, for um, people who use a... in their high school media projects for the rest yeah. of time. <laughs> uh, maybe we should do a whole series on teen angst films, specifically ones relating to us, the, the films that we watched in, in the really vulnerable years of our life. So, Sex, Lies and Videotape, Garden State, 
What are some other? Oh, uh, Royal Tenenbaums would be on that list for me. Yeah, Rushmore as well. Very interesting that all of those films are very notable for their soundtracks. Like maybe there is some correlation there between films that have like real pop music jukebox soundtracks and why they resonate with a certain age group. That's an interesting point. And one we'll have to return to at another time because we're just about done here. Uh, Thanks for listening to the show. Check us out. Uh, You can get in touch first 10 pod anywhere on social media. Uh, Also email address is first 10 pod at gmail.com coming up on the next one of these with uh, a guest. We've got Grant Spatori, the writer and director of I am mother co-writer and director of I am mother, which is on Netflix. So you can, Watch that uh, now and ahead of that next episode because he, he wants to talk about Jurassic Park. So I'm looking forward to that episode. Also, we might record Kia a special sort of first 10 pages diaries just to catch up on what you and I are up to. So keep an eye out for that in your feed. But otherwise, thanks, Kia. Thanks, Dave. See you next time. Yeah.